0: relax my music when I meet him way up there. If I play too sweet, I'll sit on the knees. Oh, that's relax okay, my music
1: when I meet him way up there.
0: Support for Wabanaki Windows comes from the Abbey Museum, founded in 1928 at sewer de Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission, to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki Nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org.
2: Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next.
1: Welcome to Webenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webenaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we'll be talking about Indigenous rights and environmental justice. I have as my special guest today, uh, Sherry Mitchell. And uh, Sherry is a, an attorney a Penobscot tribal member she's also the executive director of Land Peace Foundation she's spent uh, lots and lots of uh, time and energy researching uh, the environmental laws and uh, also the situation of uh, injustices uh, I would say worldwide for for indigenous people Uh, also I have my former co-host and We may change rules here today, too. I don't know. Uh, Maria Gerard, uh, Penobscot Nation tribal member. Uh, And uh, Maria does all kinds of different things, but she's always been uh, a longtime activist for uh, indigenous rights and environmental justice. So welcome, uh, Sherry and Maria. Thank you, Donna. Glad to be here. Now, first of all, I'd like to... uh, sherry i'd like you to uh tell us a little bit about your who you are and your your past uh interest and uh, sort of lay a foundation for us
2: okay well, first of all, Donna, thank you for having me here this morning and I'd like to apologize to our listening public. I have a bit of a cold this morning, so i'm going to be a little scratchy um i I'm a Penobscot tribal member, as you said, and I um, got my law degree at the University of Arizona, James E. Rogers College of Law, where I also received a certificate in Indigenous People's Law and Policy. And while there, I had the opportunity to work with um, the United Nations Special Rapporteur James Anaya on Indigenous Rights. He was one of my professors. And uh, also with Rob Williams, who was the director of the Indigenous People's Law and Policy program out there. Rob uh, and the staff at the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program have represented a number of very important international uh, cases. One of those being the hulka Treaty Group case, which is a case that I worked with him on. Uh, The hulka Treaty Group case is a case that comes out of British Columbia, and uh, it involves six First Nations, and that was how I first started to become aware of some of the issues that were going on in Canada, that the Idle No More movement kind of spiraled out of, and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on, and um, then through the Land Peace Foundation, there's a group of Native elders from across the United States who I've had the opportunity to work with for about 17 years. And for the past seven years, we have been working to um, address the issue of sacred sites protection. And this is a real uh, significant issue because people are starting to realize, this is one of the things that we've been claiming all along, is that there really is a nexus between indigenous land rights, environmental justice, and human survival that the importance of protecting indigenous lands um, cannot be understated that they're or overstated, that there's um, really um, a necessity at this point in time because when those lands leave the hands of indigenous peoples, they end up in the hands of industry, and they're destroyed. Uh, water sources are um, being eliminated at an alarming rate, And so, um, you know, basic human survival, we have a finite amount of water on this planet. If we lose that, we can't make any more. It's one of the things we can't do is make water. And so there's a real connection between those three areas. And um, I think that that's, uh, after doing this work for a period of time, I've always been concerned about environmental protection, but realizing the critical stage that we're at and how these things come together um, has really moved me into the arena very strongly of environmental justice.
1: Maria, <laughs> let's hear from you. Tell us about, give us a little bit about your your background and, and how you came to be interested in, in uh, the environment and the indigenous uh, rights issues. Um, well, I would consider myself
0: um, to be an, an educator and an activist and an advocate for Native American rights and responsibilities I worked um, a few years back. I was I spent uh, five years working for Penobscot Nation as director of the Cultural and Historic Preservation Department. And during that time, um, I was able to do a lot of educational outreach, educating people about uh, Native Americans, specifically uh, Penobscot history and culture. And one of the things for me that... Um, I guess it was a learning curve when I got into that... That role, I would consider myself more of a historian. Um, I, I do have degrees from the University of Maine in history, and I always would um, focus on Native American history in, in any projects and anything that I had to, to study so that I could be uh, really well acquainted there. But um, as the time progressed at the cultural department, um, I started learning more about the traditions and the culture, uh, more so than the history, And the one thing that um, registered first and foremost in my mind in that area was the sacredness of water.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Like Sherry said, um, you know, water is the key issue. If you don't have clean water, then what are you going to do? So uh, the work that I do for um, uh, the environmental work that I do really focuses on the water and some of the things that I've been paying attention to here in the state of Maine recently. Unfortunately, there's no shortage of things to pay attention to, um, but I've been paying attention to the East West Corridor uh, situation, the Searsport tank uh, issue, and also the um, mountaintop mining issue.
1: And uh, we'll get to those in detail, Um, but first I kind of want to take a wider view uh, of uh, what's going on. Uh, sort of like globally and, and um, kind of focus in finally on what's happening here in Maine. So, um, Sherry, want to take it from here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you, Donna.
1: Um, well, I think that one of the things that's going on globally
2: is that we're seeing uh, complete disregard for the laws of different nations. Um, by these corporations, that they've become so powerful that they no longer feel that they need to adhere to the law. The laws are being uh, carved out to meet their needs. And that's happening all over the place. And um, the connection that that has to these indigenous lands cannot be denied because wherever there's a major issue there's always an indigenous population that's being displaced it's happening in Brazil it's happening uh, in the United States it's happening in Canada it's happening all over the place and so um, when you look at at that the broad issue um, we can see that there have been some things that have happened in some of these areas where uh, the people woke up and they started to stop some of these actions. There have been a number of countries uh in the u k that have stopped Monsanto. you know they've stopped gMO products from being allowed into their countries. They have um outlawed fracking and tar sands extraction, but none of those things are outlawed here in the United States or Canada and so um you know when we look at the larger picture, that really is Uh, the major concern is that you have uh, this kind of corporate greed gone mad that's leading to the destruction of all these lands and waters. And there's a complete disregard for future generations. We've lost our sense of uh, longevity, you know, our long vision. And as indigenous people, we talk about the seventh generation, thinking about the seventh generation and, um, now people aren't even thinking to the ends of their own lifetime that the destruction that's going on right now is so severe that it's realistic to think that if things don't change immediately then in our lifetime we'll be standing in line for rations of water
1: Hmm. you know that sort of uh, brings to mind that uh, in order for all this stuff to happen though Legally, there have to be some policies in place to allow it to move forward. Mm -hmm. Comments on that? Well, I think that there, um, like I said, there are things
2: going on here uh, that have led to um, an open doorway. You know, certainly the Idle No More movement is a glaring example of how that happens up in Canada, where they changed all of their environmental laws, 70 environmental laws with one act, um, to pave a way for Enbridge to run a pipeline f- across Canada. And, uh, you know, that's a deregulation of all their waterways. And so these corporations have enough interest within the governments of these countries to be able to influence the direction of that policy. And I think that um, that's something that the people on the ground, the we the people in our democracy, are failing to meet their obligations. Um they stand around and complain about it. I've been one of those people who've stood around and complained about it for a long time. Um, but now is the time for action. And this is something that I've said at almost every talk that, I, that I've uh, done recently, is that if there are people waiting in the wings for the 11th hour, who are waiting uh, for the right time to jump in and save the planet, we've arrived. <laughs> now is your time. Um, you know, it's the 11th and a half hour and it's quickly ticking by. And so, um, you know, people need to be paying attention to these policies. One of the things that's uh, happened here in Maine will, you know, I'm sure we'll get to that as we narrow it down more as this public private partnership. This is an example of a piece of legislation that's creating an opportunity for these companies to go in and uh, not have to be accountable to the people who live on the ground in those places. There's uh, that piece of legislation essentially says that if there's a public-private partnership that's going on, meaning that part of it is uh, being um, facilitated by a private company, that they don't have to respond to FOIA requests, that there's no need for them to provide the public with any information about what they're doing. And so when they do that, and this is a tactic that's been used across, across the globe, um, when they do that, they're able to go in to spend money to invest substantially in that project till it gets to a place where there's a legal tipping point that says that it will no longer be equitable for them to be stopped because of the amount of investment that they've already put into the project. And so these are, these are strategies, they're tactics. They're uh, very sneaky tactics, um, but they're being used very, very successfully because people aren't paying attention to what's going
1: on in their government. Is that a, is that a main law? This that is a main law it is a main law. it is
0: that public private partnership law was uh something that was passed in 2010 and uh in in looking back it seems as though you know a lot of ducks in, were being put in a row uh to to pave the way for the place that we're in right now with all the uh environmental energy uh projects across maine and um Another aspect of the public-private partnership law, in addition to what Sherry said, uh, the the FOIA requests not being honored, the freedom of access to information uh, not being honored, is um, this specific language in there about eminent domain and that um, if there's a public-private partnership that the state of Maine can facilitate in taking the lands for these projects uh, fortunately, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit more um, when we get into the conversation, there are some uh, bills in the legislature this session that will be dealing specifically with the public-private partnership law. Okay. Another thing that I
2: wanted to mention um, that has always been a bit disturbing to me is um, this, this move to end corporate personhood. Uh, on a surface, it sounds like a great idea that corporations are not people um, and you know I think that that needs to be examined much more closely because my my mind uh, my conspiracy mind uh, wants to believe that that movement was started by corporations because under the alien tort statute which is the only law that allows corporations to be held liable for the crimes that they commit in foreign countries so they go into Ecuador and they spill hundreds of millions of gallons of crude oil into the local environment which has actually happened there's a movie called Crude out there if anybody's interested Um, and the only law that they can be held liable for the damage that they've caused is the alien tort statute and so uh, the only mechanism that allows them to be held liable under that is their status as people, as persons.
0: Mm, What's really scary about that is um, if you look at what's happening in Canada and their plan to run their pipelines from west to east, the only state that stands in the way for Canada getting their um, product to New Brunswick is the state of Maine. And so that's really concerning.
2: I also think that what's concerning about that is that part of the negotiations for this east-west corridor, this highway, is um, the ability to be able to enforce Canadian law along that route. There's a negotiation to allow that to happen, which uh, you know certainly impacts the speed of the trucks that are being used, the weight of the trucks that are being used. Um, but more importantly, how does, that, how does that relate to environmental laws where uh, Canada has taken such drastic measures to deregulate some of their environmental policy and has given you know, people uh, essentially a blank check for environmental destruction across Canada? If we're going to be implementing Canadian laws along that corridor, what does that mean in regard to the environmental integrity of our lands you know, through the state of Maine?
1: Now, when you talk about implementing Canadian law, I mean, are you, are you just talking about taking those Canadian standards and sort of blueprinting them onto our law? I
2: believe that that's what's what's being negotiated, is that there's a, there's a move, and maybe Maria can talk a little bit more about that.
0: Well, the East-West Corridor, which is um, being proposed, will run from Coburn gore in the west of Maine to Calais in the east of Maine, and this um, it's more than just a highway. it's considered an industrial corridor, and it's being viewed by most people in Maine as a shortcut for Canadian truckers. So um, of course, they would want to have the Canadian weight limits, because if they're just going to be zipping through the state of Maine to get to the other side of Canada, it's not going to make sense for them to, you know, conform to our laws. Um, their truck weight limits are about 50 tons more than ours, and uh, the speed limit is 75 miles per hour, and uh, they operate using these um, tandem trucks as well, so they're, they're huge. And there's a lot of unknowns in this east-west corridor. First of all, who is this private investor, this unnamed private investor, mm. for, who's going to own this, this um, private toll road? And... Um, I totally lost my train of thought. Well,
2: <laughs> I think that it's important to recognize
0: that there's also
2: been approval in Canada for this uh, Enbridge pipeline, which was going to go down through the western part of Canada, through the western United States. There was so much resistance against um, that happening in, um, in the western United States that um, they've run... A Keystone, yeah, Keystone Pipeline, uh, they've approved the running of that from the west of Canada over to the east of Canada, to Atlantic Canada. And as Maria said, the only thing that exists between Atlantic
0: Canada and the Atlantic Ocean is the state of Maine. The information that is coming forth isn't information that's coming forth out of our media sources. It's coming forth out of Canada. I have in front of me this this article from the Winnipeg Free Press, Energy Minister Solidifies Federal Acceptance of West East Oil Pipeline. And it talks in detail about running the pipeline from Alberta to Atlantic Canada. Um, there is also an article that came out I think it was September or October in the Calgary Times that also it was written sort of like an editorial in it and it was like great news you know we found a solution to the problem of how to run this this pipeline they were re- they were meeting so much resistance in in running it west um, they didn't want it going through this pristine wilderness in british columbia they were um salmon protected rivers first nation rivers um with uh, protected status and um and then the Keystone running down to the Gulf of Mexico got shot down as well. Mm-hmm. So now the good news in the Canadian press is their solution is to run it east to St. John, New Brunswick.
2: Right. And so if you think about the route that this east west corridor is going to take across Maine, it would line up pretty conveniently to the endpoint of the pipeline. Right. And so if we have a privately owned corridor, Streaming across the state of Maine um, that lines up with this pipeline there 's a very good chance I think that that pipeline is going to come across that corridor as well
1: to talk about uh, how that uh, that uh, east west corridor is going to cross over uh, native uh, tribal territory yeah. um, there 's
0: a couple places that it 's expected to um, interfere with tribal land and water. Uh, the first would be in Alder Stream. Uh, Alder Stream Township is um, a parcel of land owned by the Penobscots. Um, I suspect that it's going to be following an existing road, so it won't be extremely damaging. However, the um, the piece of land that we're really concerned about is the, the Birch Stream land that we have. It's just north of... Um, Penobscot Nation, Indian Island, and it's uh, located in Alton and Argyle. It's a total of about 9,000 acres, and that territory has always been traditional ancestral hunting territory, gathering territory for our tribe, and we were able to reacquire that as a result of the Maine Indian Land Claims. And so it's really disturbing um, now to see that piece of land being in danger again. And, of course, it's going to have to cross the Penobscot River. So
2: what's even more disturbing about that to me is if you look at some of the things that have happened in other parts of the country, the San Francisco Peaks case comes to mind where you have a piece of land that is a named historical site, It is a named traditional site, sacred site, to more than a dozen tribes, and um, they have allowed this destructive industry practice to take place there, specifically um, the using of reclaimed wastewater to make snow, uh, using water from mortuaries and hospitals, which have all kinds of um, biotoxins in it, endocrine blockers, and there's not been any uh, significant studies being done. but they've allowed that to happen, saying that the tribal people still had access to those lands. But what happens is it creates a constructive eviction, essentially, mm-hmm. because it destroys the purpose for which those lands are being used. Mm-hmm. And so, when you have these destructive environmental practices that are taking place on the edge of, because even where it doesn't cross tribal land, it's still downriver. Right. Um, there still would be runoff that would be. Uh, part of that, but also one of the things that you've said in the past, Maria, is how this corridor connects these two fracking fields. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes. um, A map that was uncovered, and and again, this is Canadian resources, uh, uh, excuse me, Canadian sources, uh, revealed a map that was very interesting, located on either side of um, the East-West Corridor in Quebec, and in New Brunswick at either ends are potential hydrofracking fields, so shales that could be hydrofracked. Uh, and this process of hydrofracking in and of itself is um, so incredibly uh, damaging to the environment. And uh, the, the one thing that concerns me the most is the water. This practice of hydrofracking will destroy Huge, huge quantities of water. And some of the concerns that are being um, cited for this east-west corridor is the fact that it will then open up more of Maine's lands and resources for further exploitation, specifically water resources. Mm-hmm. Western Maine is
1: loaded with abundant water sources. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I've heard it's just this anecdotal uh, quote about Maine having one-third of the fresh water in the world. Yeah.
2: I think that's true. We have... And, you know, right now, we have a severe water crisis going on in the country. Two-thirds of the country is supplied by the Oglala Aquifer, which is being tamped down every single year. Mm -hmm. It's being depleted, and it's becoming lower and lower and lower every single year. Part of that problem is the bottled water industry, Mm -hmm. um, which is the biggest farce um, that has ever been committed upon the people of the planet. Um, and it's, it's essentially robbing people of the water. And it comes an issue where is water, right to water, access to water, for survival, a human right? Or is survival on this planet going to become a pay-to-play game? You know, I mean, and that's really what we're coming to. Because with fracking, I think they use something like 40,000 gallons of water per site, per drill. Um, not per site, but per drill. And that's fresh water that's pumped in there at high, under high pressure. Uh, and it fractures the, the shale so that this wash can come up that contains the oils. Um, and they have these containment pools for that water. But what they don't talk about is the fact that um, the water leaches out of that area. Yeah. There's nothing to hold it in there. You know, it doesn't know any boundaries. And so those chemicals that are part of the soup... That's used in the hydrofracturing, which they don't have to list. There has been legislation passed that they don't have to list the chemicals that are in there. People don't even know what's in there. Right. Um, Leaches into the groundwater surrounding those areas, and it travels to um, these freshwater sources. And that's where you get situations where people are able
0: to light their tap water on fire. Mm -hmm. The uh, storage of that wastewater as well, like Sherry said, there's over 500 chemicals, most of all, aren't revealed to us, aren't tested, and aren't regulated uh, by the EPA. Um, They take that wastewater and have to store it, and scientists are finding a connection between the increase in earthquakes uh, and the locations of this waste water, and where it 's sited there 's all kinds of uh nitrates in that water right. that then get into the the ground and are causing these earthquakes right it 's really scary business and um i 'm concerned about the the water in the in the western part of the state. Maine has such antiquated water laws basically the person with the biggest pump wins right You can pump all the water you want, and that 's that 's happening um
2: you know, you have these uh, bottled water companies that have bought up Poland Spring. Nestle mm-hmm. is the big culprit. Um, they've bought up dozens of water bottled water companies. And what they do is they go into an area, they put their pump in the ground, and they start pumping, and it drains the water from local users, from their wells, from their groundwater supplies, so that their groundwater supplies dry up. Mm-hmm. Um, and people file injunctions against them. And the people usually win, but by the time they win, they've taken so much of the water that the damage has already been done. And that's part of their strategy, is to pump as much as they can, as fast as they can, before the people can get to court.
0: Well, one of the areas that are really prevalent with hydrofracking is the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, I recently saw on the Weather Channel a a map of severe drought, and the whole like two-thirds of the country in the middle of the country is under a severe drought. And I haven't checked up on the status of the Mississippi River, but I heard that the water was at an all-time low and that Mm -hmm. they were going to actually have to stop... um, barges from traveling the mississippi river to you know for for commerce and it's the first time that this has ever happened right. and so if you're engaged in a practice that is continually sucking the water out of the ground and then using it to blast into the rocks and then contaminating it that doesn't sound like a very forward thinking plan and, and i think people in the state of maine don't really realize right. how fortunate we are to have right. such an abundance of water i know. You know, I had guests from California a few years back that were just astounded at our water. They just, they couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. It was so beautiful. It was so abundant. And I think us here in the state of Maine, we just don't realize how fortunate we are and the need to protect that. Absolutely.
2: Um, One of the things that is really striking about what you just said is that, you know, that's the same location where this Oglala Aquifer is, and Mm. that's where all of this water is being pulled up by industry. Um, But a friend of mine, Sean, who works with me on Sacred Sites Protection, and the group that we represent in that um, area is a group of traditional spiritual elders from across the country. And these are, you know, all very humble spiritual individuals who have dedicated their lives to... Uh, spiritual practice, and they've only come forward because they feel that it's critical, that the situation is crucial. And he talks about going to this place in the Colorado River where he's gone his whole life, and it's always been this raging you know, body of water, and the only water that existed was below the, below the rocks. It looked like just this bed of boulders. And the Colorado River supplies water to the whole western side of the country, you know, California and Arizona and all those areas. And so um, when you look at those two major water sources that are being completely uh, depleted as a result of this industry, the only place they're going to have left to go is New England. Mm -hmm. And this is the reason why these practices are outlawed everywhere else in the world except for North America. So they're going to be pushing as hard as they can and throwing unlimited resources at this area to try to gain access to these water sources. Yeah,
1: and the sad part is, I believe they've already gained the uh, mountaintop mining piece. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's passed the legislature, kind of just went under the radar screen of yeah. uh, of everybody. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah, that was passed um, last spring, I believe it was, um, allowing J.D. Irvin to potentially um, mine I think there's five um, mountains that are being cited for mountaintop, potentially cited for mountaintop mining. And I have them
1: here somewhere. I mean, you know, f- even five years ago, it, or, or, was, you know, I mean, who would think that Maine would approve the ex- excavation of their mountaintops? Come on.
0: Right. Yeah, that's really, really disturbing. Um, the, the, site, the mountains that are being cited. Uh, for potential mountaintop open pit mining are Bald Mountain and Mount Chase in Aroostook County and um, the Alder Pond, which is over in Western Maine, um, Lower Enchanted. And I'll um, just oh, shoot this one more and I, it escapes me right now. Um, I, I recently attended a presentation in Augusta, by uh, Ramsey Hart of uh, Mountain Watch Mining Watch, excuse me in Canada, and he talked about these these dangers of open pit mines, and he pretty much called it a waste management issue because when you go in and you take apart this mountain, the materials that you 're actually looking for maybe constitute one percent of waste of the mountain so you got one percent of material that you're looking for and then 99 percent of waste that has to go somewhere and uh he talked about all these different um these different minerals that when encased in the mountain they're safe but when exposed to air and water they become very dangerous Mm -hmm. Um, you know there's uh, the problem of acid mine drainage uh, where the water that comes in contact with those minerals then turns into sulfuric acid. You get that in your, your brooks and your streams and your fish are pretty much done for. Mm-hmm. And the location of the, um, the Aristic County, uh, mountains are, you know, they're in close proximity to some major waterways, the, the fish rivers for, uh, as a matter of fact, and also the Mount Chase, um, mountain is probably about 20 miles from some tribal Penobscot uh, territory uh, located in Madagamon. So a lot of scary business that we're we're dealing with. And I think that, you know, people don't realize
2: the connectivity of our ecosystem. Mm. And so this is where you have, you know, this traditional understanding of connectivity that overlays The reality of our environmental structures. And so we have, um, there is no uh, boundary, there is no border that is recognized by these toxins. So they are just going to flow down the mountain into these water sources and travel um, into the water sources that feed both human and livestock Mm -hmm. um, needs. And so uh, everybody's going to be impacted by this. Everybody. Because the loss of water in one location means the loss of water everywhere else, it's going to ripple out. And I think that, you know, Donnie, you said that, you know, years ago, we wouldn't have even imagined having this kind of thing going on in Maine. Um, There has been a race that has gone on in the past few years in the state of Maine to uh, bring in as much of this industry as possible. Uh, And that is really going to be the legacy of Governor LePage, I believe, is the amount of environmental destruction that he's allowed to come into the state of Maine. Uh, In fact, the head of the current Maine Department of Environmental Protection is an oil and gas industry executive. And so when you have the fox watching the hen house... Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to end up with a lot of dead hens, and I think that that's mm-hmm. one of the things that um, we're looking at right now in Maine is that there's a lot of people that are going to be impacted irreparably mm-hmm. by these environmental practices if they don't start coming to the table and demanding that they stop.
0: Well, he did say that Maine was open for business. I guess he wasn't kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and you, you touched on a very good point, Sherry. And I think, if anything, uh, if I could just encourage people to not only look at these, um, these issues that are occurring around the state, but look at them holistically because my frustration is, you know, we'll have a hearing for this and we'll have a hearing for that, but you're not allowed to talk about, you know, what's going on elsewhere. But if you looked at the whole state of Maine, I would say that they're under environmental assault they are. all the way around. And if you include the Enbridge Pipeline... Um, You include the Searsport LPG tank. You include the East-West Corridor. You include the the mega dump Juniper Ridge um, and the mountaintop mining. I mean, oh, my God, that's terrible.
1: You know, I remember you you talking about the Searsport uh, tank issue. Want to speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah. um, A subsidiary of uh, ConocoPhillips called uh, DCP Midstream is um, hoping to site a 25 million gallon liquid petroleum gas storage tank in Penobscot Bay um, within the confines of uh, Searsport. And um, the majority of Searsport citizens, I think it's safe to say, they don't want this tank. What's frustrating is that the decision on whether or not to site this um, tank, which you know, it has the potential for to be very dangerous. There's a geological fault that runs along uh, the coast of Maine, which this tank would sit on. Um, so the decision on whether or not to have this rests with a five-member planning committee in Searsport. Now, I would think that something of such magnitude would be a regional issue and, you know, that more people should have some say as to whether or not this happens. Um, there was recently a report that was done. One of the concerns, uh, again, like Sherry said, we got the Fox Guard the Hen House. One of the concerns that some residents mentioned I attended a hearing uh, um, last month and got to speak to a a few of the locals there. They felt that this was just rubber-stamped by the DEP and that there wasn't any assessment of the environmental impact. And so um, some groups got together. They raised some money for an independent um, risk assessment. And... um, that report came back, and the headline for the report that was released to the public on January 14th read, uh, National Safety and Security Expert Recommends Denying Permits for cs LPG Terminal. And it's a 138-page report, and it gives all kinds of reasons why this is a bad idea, and yet we're s- they're still discussing it. There's still the possibility that this five-person planning committee in cs is going to say... Let's do it. And this is, you know, this is huge. This is twenty-seven and a half million gallons. This is thirteen stories high. A refrigerated um, vessel in Penobscot Bay. If something were to happen, and there were some earthquakes in November recently, if something were to happen, that would really. What kind of damage could that do? I mean, the. Um, I think it would change the whole face of the Penobscot River. I really do. It's explosive. It's highly explosive. You can go online and watch um, there was one thing online that I watched where there was an explosion of a 3,000 gallon tank in Virginia and it sent fireballs you know, way up into the sky.
2: Shook the cars on the streets. Oh, it
0: was terrifying. And that was 3,000 gallons. They're
2: saying that the equivalent um, if there was a And this is highly pressurized. So if there's an earthquake underneath this storage tank, which there has been many um, along that area, um, and it doesn't have to be very big, that's enough to cause a leak in this tank. Um, The explosion would be equivalent to a 15 kiloton nuclear bomb going off Uh, and that would take out not only it wouldn't change just the face of Penobscot Bay it would change the face of central coastal Maine Mm -hmm. it would take out that whole area
0: the location of this tank uh, just off uh, Mack Point in Searsport uh, is right next to Route 1 that's the evacuation route right nobody's going to be getting anywhere Nobody's going to be going anywhere
1: well you kind of wonder, I mean, I know some people that, uh, they're thinking, well, you know, that's worst case scenario and, you know, it's just, uh, the sky is falling kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how, what's your response to that? What are, you know, people who say, well, you know, that's just not going to happen. It's just fiction. Let's hope they're right. I think <laughs> that, um, you know,
2: in a perfect world, those things wouldn't happen, but in a perfect world, um you know, we would have clean energy. And so we wouldn't have to be worrying about these types of things. Certainly the technology is available, and I think that that's that's the next step is to start demanding on a large scale that our government start utilizing the clean energy technology that is available to them instead of Mm -hmm. allowing it to sit in locked safes while they exploit all of the resources on the planet. Um, But if you look at the history of these types of things, there is a consistent history of mishap. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a consistent history of things going wrong. uh, And when you have small-scale tanks that have the capacity to um, allow a small town to experience the equivalent of a, you know, five-to-six-point earthquake, Mm -hmm. uh,
0: imagine what 27 million gallons will do you know well just aside from uh the storage tank itself there's going to be an increase in tanker truck uh traffic along right. route one and route three uh, they i believe at the hearing they estimated uh between 100 and 144 tanker trucks every single day uh visiting that area i mean every Real day one's a nightmare as in and of itself you yeah. know let alone these tanker trucks but then you know any collision involving tanker trucks um, you know that would carrying pressurized natural gas that's pretty scary stuff and of course you know and they always tout gas. the jobs 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 well all the jobs in the world aren't going to matter you know if you have no clean water left no clean air left and I think that they actually studied the the economic gain for the Searsport uh, tank and found that maybe eight to twelve permanent jobs might be um, projected, so it's nothing too significant and you know chances are are that the people in our area probably wouldn't have the qualifications for these jobs and I don't say that in you know a mean way; it's just that you know they have certain expertise and and people will come here to fill those jobs
1: sure and a lot of the stuff they you know like you you cited reports that were done on these these things and a lot of that stuff is just kept under wraps you it never is. hear about it mm-hmm. uh for, now i tell me if, i've heard i heard i remember i heard this i think it was on a news broadcast or something a documentary that uh, there was a huge oil spill I'm not sure it was in the Midwest, even bigger than than the Exxon Valdez bill. And nobody hears about that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I actually uh, that's
2: one of the things that I actually think you might have heard that at a council meeting. Ah, yeah. okay. (laughs) Okay. I talked about that at the tribal council meeting. But that, um, you know, there's um, in in Michigan, right where um, this Enbridge pipeline comes into the United States uh, along the Kalamazoo River. Uh, there was a hundred million gallon spill there of heavy crude oil that went into the Kalamazoo River to the wetlands and the marshes surrounding it, impacting um, a very very broad area. Uh, the cleanup on that has been going on for two years they 've spent over eight hundred million dollars, and now they 're saying that they 're no longer going to engage in any more cleanup efforts that it 's you know too costly and it 's taken too long. Uh, In the meantime, there's a do not drink order for people within a 50 to 75 mile radius of where the spill occurred. That's a huge population of people who cannot drink their water and it's going to travel. I mean, that stuff gets into the groundwater and it travels. And so that area is going to increase over time the more that um, this stuff is allowed to sit. And it's sitting in the bottom of the Kalamazoo River. Mm-hmm. You know, they they don't want to do any more dredging. And so uh, we don't hear about that. We heard about the spill in the Gulf
0: Coast, but we don't hear about 100 million gallons. Wow. Yeah. And this same uh, company, Enbridge, uh, is the company that's proposing... A tar sands uh, pipeline from Montreal to Portland, right, and those people that are paying specific attention to that um, environmental nightmare are concerned because it this pipeline would cross um, salmon habitat in the crooked river, it would go uh, it would travel alongside Sebago Lake. you know this is drinking water supply for Portland. And um, they want to reuse an existing pipeline that goes along that route. It might sound like a good idea, but it's not because that pipeline wasn't built to accommodate tar sands. And the difference um, you know, between tar sands and some other uh, fluid is that tar sands is highly corrosive. It's like a thick sludge, and it requires a lot of pressure and, and high temperatures to move it mm-hmm. along the pipeline. And so this increases the likelihood of some sort of break in the pipeline. Yeah, it's pretty. It's like Maine is under. It's under assault. It's by. under attack. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: And the, another thing is that that pipeline is sixty years old. Mm-hmm. So it, it was not designed with this type of technology in mind, and it's not right. uh, suited for that type of. Um, Process, and I think that it's also really important to note when we talk about tar sands that um, James Hansen, who is a NASA scientist, has been arrested several times protesting tar sands. We had uh, Robert Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, that was just arrested, uh, and Daryl Hannah and a couple of other celebrities were just recently arrested um, protesting some of these actions. But um, tar sands is what he calls um, an end game proposition for human life on this planet that it's so destructive that it really is a game over um, type of deal. And so when you have these companies who are engaging in these practices that have been outlawed everywhere else in the world, and that have been labeled by some of the best scientists in the world as an end game proposition for human life, why is it being allowed to occur? Mm -hmm. Why? And as our friend Gizitanimuk said at our last discussion, you know, if you're questioning how to get involved, you know, whether or not you should get involved, the only question you should ask yourself is, what is the cost of not getting involved? Right. And the cost really is not having a planet for the future of human life to survive on.
0: Yeah. I would encourage um, at this point, if you know, people are concerned and are really disturbed by what they're hearing, and they should be, um, to contact your legislators and let them know that you that you have these concerns. And I think if enough people start putting the pressure on, um, I would like to think that they would do the right thing and prevent this, um, I call it an energy takeover of the state right. of Maine.
1: Yeah. But, you know, the other t- thing, too, is just calling and talking about it, you've got to know what you're talking about a mm-hmm. bit, so i would suggest they start educating themselves you know we have uh the internet Mm -hmm. lots of information on that internet start educating yourself get your facts together and then call your senator or your your representative and uh let them know how you feel about things And I also think that uh, one of the things that's been very
2: successful across Canada, which is how the Idle No More movement came about, is that they started staging Mm teach-ins. So you educate yourselves, or you bring somebody who's educated to your area to have a discussion on these issues, to educate the public. So you invite all of your friends, then they hold a session and they invite all of their friends, Mm -hmm. um, and you start getting these broad-scale movements going, um, calling Writing letters, you know, petitions—all of these things are essential. That we really have to start taking our place in um, our role, uh, acting in our role in our own democracy, and that if we don't, if we don't start involving ourselves on a very, very fundamental level, getting rid of those politicians who are catering to corporate interests, mm-hmm. um, you know, reminding our politicians that their job is to
0: serve the public, not corporate interests. There are a lot of um, organizations that have come out in um, opposition against several of these um, environmental. Attacks and so, just if you can Google some of these uh, organizations, you could probably find a wealth of information. I know the Sierra Club has come out against the East West Corridor. There's also a coalition that has mm-hmm. been formed called Stop the East West Corridor Coalition. Um, the Natural Resources Council of Maine has come out in opposition to the mountaintop mining, and um, groups like Three Fifty Org, yeah. um, Defending Water for Life in Maine. Mm-hmm. There's many, many groups who have come out um, strongly against these sorts of uh, projects. And so just going online and and visiting these sorts of sites will give you a wealth of information as well.
1: The other thing, too, is is I remember we were talking earlier on our way here. And uh, Maria, you said something about uh, all kinds of uh, energy and uh, money actually has gone into the Penobscot Restoration Project project. Yeah. And, and then it's sort of ironic that they, they spend millions and yeah. millions of dollars on this. Yeah.
0: It's almost like the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's <coughs> doing or maybe they don't care. But, you know, I think something like, you know, $60 million has been spent, has been raised by, you know, mostly private funds, um, some public funds to improve the fisheries in the Penobscot River and that sounds like a fabulous plan and then they you know turn around and talk about putting a 25 million gallon liquid petroleum gas tank right in Penobscot Bay it just doesn't make any sense I think that another thing
2: that I wanted to mention that connects to what you're saying, Maria, is that you know you have this case going on right now where they're challenging the authority of the tribe to manage their waterways, mm-hmm. and that that is a tactic that has been used in other areas as well. Like If you look at the broader picture, this is a known strategy. You go in preemptively, you challenge the authority of the local governments, in this case the tribes, um, to be able to manage their own waterways. Mm-hmm and um, then you bring through your destructive industry. Mm -hmm. And so this is where it becomes crucial for people to really pay attention to what's going on in regard to indigenous land and water rights because you can almost be guaranteed that where there is a concern over indigenous land and water rights, there is a destructive industrial um, body behind Mm -hmm. that attack on those rights. Uh, and you know, people need to be allies. This is a time when they need to really, really connect, solidly connect. It can't be said enough that indigenous land and water rights, environmental justice, and human survival are colliding in a way um, that is making it essential for us all to come together. Right. And I think at these points of collision is where we have the opportunity to create real change.
0: Absolutely. And I do know, you know, from my experience and in, in doing so much educational outreach with folks all throughout the state of Maine, that they, that we are fortunate in that we do have many, many, many allies out there. Um, and so it's just a matter of how do we pull everyone together and and start moving uh, collectively toward a common goal. And you know, like you said earlier, the water and the air doesn't know any borders or boundaries. Right. So, um, if we had to find, you know, me forever the optimist, if I had to find something positive out of all of this mess, would be the fact that we're starting to talk about alliances and starting to talk about identifying our common grounds and uh, working together collectively and realizing that, you know, clean air and clean water isn't an Indian thing, it's everybody. And that brings us back to those prophecies, that you
2: talk about, you know, that where you have all of these prophecies that are lining up, Mm -hmm. you know, the eighth fire prophecy, the rainbow warrior prophecy, which both talk about people from all corners of the world rising up and coming together to unite against an environmental um, destruction. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're witnessing that happening right now in our lifetime. And that since there is no division, you know, these toxins know no division they know no borders there can't be any division um, between those of us who are working to protect the earth you know and indigenous people have been standing up uh, for the rights of the earth you know there is just uh, the law of mother earth you know that um, Mm -hmm. the protections for the laws of the rights of mother earth that were just passed in South America. And, you know, indigenous people across the globe have been standing up for these rights, uh, for the protection of the earth since the beginning of time. Right. And now we're inviting everybody else to stand up with us because human survival is at stake.
0: Well, one thing that we've talked about in the past is rights versus responsibilities mm-hmm. and how in the native languages, no word for rights. Um, we have responsibilities. And so... We believe the Creator put us in this place, and this is the place that we're responsible for. Um, and so we invite other people to um, to share in that vision of responsibility and to do whatever they can do. Mm-hmm. Even if you think it's, oh, you know, I can't do much, it's just me, you can do something. You can make a phone call, you can write an email, you can write a letter, you can have a teach-in, right. you can host Films and discussion series, there's a lot of things that anybody can do, and the time is now. Right. And I also want to take this opportunity, uh, we only have a
2: few minutes left, to just tie together, you know, this with uh, VAWA, the Violence Against Women's Act. Um, I heard somebody say that, you know, the the simple way to tie this together uh, is to say that, you know, our first environment was the body of a woman, the womb of our mother. And, uh, you know, many Native people have this ceremonial practice that when a child is born, they take the umbilical cord and they bury it into the land where that child is born, signifying the transition from the child's, you know, subsistence ecosystem being the womb of the mother Mm -hmm. becoming Mother Earth. You know, it signifies that transition that child is now dependent on Mother Earth for its subsistence. And I think that, you know, when you think about all of these issues that seem like they're distinct issues, they really are all connected. And it's just a systematic attack on a way of life. It's a systematic attack on, um, you know, the system of connectivity that we all rely on for our
1: survival. And what happens when you... Under attack like that is, you know, you have a choice. And, and according to the prophecies, we now have a choice. Absolutely. We have two paths. And which path are we going to choose? Right. Oh, the and path it's of
0: greed and materialism, or the path of spirituality and unity.
2: Right. Right. And common sense. Common, I mean, sense. common sense. Survival. <laughs> survival. You know, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. we have the technology available to us to be able to start shifting. Uh, the direction that we're moving in immediately it's available immediately and if we don't rise up and start demanding that that technology be utilized it doesn't need to be between the environment and the economy you can create an economy on green jobs
1: yeah Yeah, absolutely well thank you sherry thank you maria it's been very enlightening and uh, you're listening to uh, weru Uh, thanks for joining us today I'm your host, Donna Loring, and I've been talking with uh, Sherry Mitchell and Maria Gerard about indigenous rights and environmental justice. Um, The music for our show uh, is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, DreamWork. And thank you for joining us, and tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.